All right, I'll be reading from Mark chapter 11, and I'm gonna do verses one through 11 in English, and then verses 12 through 21 will be in Hebrew. So this is Mark chapter 11, starting at verse one. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bet Hageh and Bet Anya at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you entered it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it right back here shortly. When they went and found a colt outside on the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hoshana, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hoshana, in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And now verse 12 with Hebrew. Thirteen. Fifteen. Betty, Betty, Fila, Ikare lechala hamim, Achatem asitim, Otolim arat perzim. Eighteen. Shemurashe, Hakonim, Vehasofrim, Vehipse duderech lechid, Oto. Kipahadum menu, Shechen ko hamon, Hippelel mitorato. Nineteen. Let Erev, Yatsa el mihuts la ir. Twenty. Baboker avru veru et et Hatena yavesh mishan rashaif. Twenty one. Nizkar kefa veamar alav. Rabbi rae et hatena shakilata yavesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Aaron. What a gift, man. So this past summer, I got to know a guy named Ray who owns a few residential buildings in Nashville where business has been booming uh, for quite some time now as the market's kind of blown up there. Business has been so good that he and his wife Melanie, who had recently become empty nesters, had begun to plan an early retirement, dreaming of a time when they would take it easy. And so they purchased a beach house in Florida and began to spend about half their time on the coast at that house. At the same time, there's this single mother renting a unit uh, in one of Ray's buildings. She's consistently late on rent, 
hasn't paid in months altogether, actually. He has every legal right to evict her, but he's choosing to show mercy, mainly because he's gotten to know her four children that live there with her, aged between six and 16, if I'm remembering exactly right. And he feels for her, so he's looked the other way a few times, and then one day, child services intervenes for reasons that Ray had no idea about at all. And this woman is arrested, and her children are taken into the foster care system. They're split into all different families. And Ray's explaining all this to a mutual friend of mine and his. This is someone that he really trusts, looks up to spiritually. He's hoping to get a little pearl of wisdom about what he might do here. Uh, he's really burdened by the thought of these four kids who he knows and has doted on being split up from one another and being in strangers' houses. And he says, well, why don't you pray? Now, you need to know this about Ray at this point. Uh, at the time of this conversation, he's a Christian, but of the nominal variety, by which I mean he believes in Jesus in some ultimate sense, but that is doing very little to inform his day-to-day -day life in any tangible sense. He uh, occasionally attends a church that he kind of stays on the fringes of. He's not uh, actively following Jesus uh, in, in the choices that he's making and the way that he uses his money or, or thinks about his engagement with the world or anything like that. He holds a particular view of life's ultimate meaning and purpose, but lives a mostly indistinguishable day-to-day -day life from anyone else believing anything else. Why don't you pray? It's a dangerous suggestion. Dangerous because they were just beginning to arrive at this comfortable put your feet up lifestyle they'd been scheming. And Jesus has this habit of inviting those who pray into becoming the answers to their own prayers. Jesus has a way of inviting us to become our prayers. And that's what happened to Ray. Prayer turned out to be a real slippery slope for he and his wife, Melanie who later fostered to adopt all four of these kids. This was after they were done parenting and were looking forward to the next chapter. A time when uh, they were thinking about relaxing and vacation and golf and five o'clock margaritas. They become the radical parents to four rambunctious kids. Prayer completely messed up their life. And it's beautiful. I mean, it is a life and life to the full story of adventure that only those who follow Jesus get to inherit. And you know what else? It's hard. There's dysfunction and disagreement and generational issues and cross-cultural learning and the world's changed a whole lot since they were parents. It's not a happily ever after story. It's a, the fight is really, in, they're in the midst of it right now kind of story. It's much harder than vacation and golf. Because you know what? It's love. It is radical, sacrificial, never would have done it except for the fact that I took this crazy risk called prayer kind of love. And costly love does have this way of filling the human heart with meaning and satisfaction and purpose in a way that putting my feet up for years on end never possibly could. But costly love is also costly. So there's some orphans that uh, have been gathered into a home and made family. And Ray and Melanie are discovering the deepest, fullest, freest kind of life by giving theirs away. And it's all because prayer is so often an invitation to become. 
a house of prayer for all nations. That's our vision for 2022, a vision that we're seeking to embody and practice. And that vision is anchored by a picture, the biblical story of Jesus' temple cleansing, when in the midst of a holy tirade, he blurted out, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's a statement in which he joins together prayer and justice. Jesus was not saying, this is the place we will come to to pray for all the nations. He was saying, this is the house where all the nations will come together to pray to the one true God. That's a picture that got us going a month or so ago, Jesus mimicking David's holy, foolish, royal entrance to put prayer right at the center of God's people. And we return to the very same picture today because the picture that got us here is the picture that keeps us going. So we're gonna look back at the same biblical picture, only this time from a slightly different vantage point, where we have been looking at it specifically in relation to prayer, we'll now look at it in relation to justice. And today is the hinge that whole story turns on. It's titled, Becoming Our Prayers. And that takes us to Mark chapter 11. Now, I don't have time to ring this passage out for everything it's worth. So for our purposes this morning, I wanna draw your attention to three major scenes, which I've titled, Figs, Tears, and Inside Out. So scene one, figs. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. A couple weeks ago, Heidi, a friend of mine from this community, brought me some figs from the fig tree in her backyard, and they are incredible. Honestly, my entire experience with figs prior was Fig Newtons, which are much, <laughs> much worse than the real thing. I mean, wild figs, they're like a real-life candy land. It's unbelievable. I cannot believe something that sweet grows on a tree. And that's coming from me, a 21st century American who's had their taste buds dulled by refined sugars and basically everything, right? Uh, so just imagine Jesus living in a world before high fructose corn syrup, how good a wild fig must have tasted. So it, it makes sense to me that Jesus, seeing a fig tree in the distance, would have gotten quite excited. And it makes sense to me that Jesus arriving at that fig tree, which has all the signs of life, but no actual fruit on its branches, would have been pretty bummed by the result. But to curse the tree altogether, Banish it from ever bearing fruit again. I mean, it does seem like a touch of an overreaction, doesn't it? And his disciples heard him say it. Now that bit, that's a tell. It's a cue that what Jesus has just done is not about figs. He's embodying an illustration. He is making himself into a picture of what is to come next. Jesus is embodying an illustration. He's putting on a show to make a point, and his disciples notice what he's doing. They just don't know what the point is yet. Scene two, tears. Now, every great film includes a flashback or two, right? A great film tends to drop you right into the midst of the conflict, then take you back to fill in some backstory so that you understand the context of the conflict and then take you beyond there. So we're gonna get to the conflict next in scene three, but you're gonna need some backstory in order to see it in its full context. I started right in the middle of the text that was just read to us. So let's 
return more toward the beginning. This, that the next day as they were leaving Bethany where we began, the day before that was the triumphal entry. It's when people were tearing palm fronds out of trees and pulling the cloaks off their backs to make a makeshift red carpet for Jesus to come into Jerusalem as king. And when Jesus rode that little colt near enough to the city skyline to see the city of Jerusalem there, we read in Luke's account, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now this moment happens after the Hosannas, but before he enters the temple. Jesus gazes at the city with tears streaming down his face. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus pauses to pray and that prayer reveals that what drives his actions in the temple that are coming is not anger, but love. He weeps, he weeps with compassion for the city and then he goes to, re to reform the temple. Oscar Romero says, there are many things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. Now weeping over the city, that's prayer. Reforming the temple, that's justice. And in Jesus, these two are inseparable. And when I say justice, I may or may not mean what leaps to your mind when you hear that word. Because in recent years, our culture has offered us many understandings of justice that align with Jesus in some ways and are completely out of alignment with Jesus in other ways. In Jesus, justice is a word for what happens when our prayers get embodied. Jesus' followers, though, are ever eager to separate what he has joined together. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So scene three, inside out. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began, and this is when he makes a mess. You know, it's, ah, and he's throwing tables over, and there's change spilling everywhere across the floor, and, and he's kicking over dove cages, and there's feathers flying everywhere in the air. He, he brings a homemade whip to lead a stampede down the temple steps. The, the meek and mild Savior is going berserk. Uh, so what on earth is Jesus, or what is God so worked up about? Well, by modern estimates, a dove outside would have cost you about 75 or six cents, but inside the temple, it cost 75. There was a currency exchange in the temple and the sanctuary shekel was the only acceptable form of payment. That's how the priest made sure that you bought your sacrifice inside. They were ripping people off who were trying to purchase forgiveness. And all that's happening in the part of the temple known as the court of the Gentiles. It got that, that name because it's the only part of the temple that someone outside of the nation of Israel was allowed to access. If you're not of the chosen race, your worship ends here. And the priests have taken the nation's only place of prayer and turned it into a shopping mall. Jesus explained his holy tantrum by borrowing a few words. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? In this statement, Jesus joins together two of Israel's more revered prophets. That, that first bit is from Isaiah. The second is from Jeremiah. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus quotes Isaiah, a prophet most known for rebuking Israel because they had somehow separated a life of prayer from a life of care for the poor. But he doesn't just quote Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah chapter 56, 
which is all about how the temple is a place for the eunuch and the foreigner and the stranger. It culminates, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. All the way back in Genesis, God blessed Israel to become a blessing to all nations. And then here stands the God behind that plan and behind those prophetic promises. And he's looking around at his own house and it's stained with financial corruption and spiritual corruption and racism. But you have made it a den of robbers. See here, Jesus is quoting Jeremiah chapter seven. This is a a phrase that's pulled from a prophetic call to repent and reform, an invitation to mercy for those who are willing to turn to God. Jeremiah says this, standing at the temple gate, the very place Jesus now stands, quoting Jeremiah, where he said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever. Jesus is speaking to priests, priests who knew these prophets like the back of their hand, without doubt, when Jesus quickly references phrases from these chapters, all the context is leaping to the minds of the priests that he's talking to. They know exactly what he's saying. There is no such thing as a house of prayer that is not equally a house of justice. You see, in the eyes of the priest, the temple looks great. I mean, look, we're living in a hostile culture. It's Roman occupation. And the, the giving numbers are good. The attendance looks even better. It's Passover week. And our services are standing room only. But remember, there are some things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. So what did the crying, compassionate eyes of Jesus see? Injustice. The house of prayer for all nations has become a holy huddle of spiritual rhetoric while the poor are left to fend for themselves outside. And Jesus prayed, he wept with compassion over the people, his kingdom lacking everywhere that he laid his tear-filled eyes. And then Jesus became his prayer. He called injustice by its name and put right what had been corrupted. Matthew's account shows us how he did it. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you're making it a den of robbers. And then the very next verse, the blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Jesus did a whole lot more than make a mess of the temple market. He made a mess of the temple structure. He brought the blind and lame in with him. Historically, groups such as these were barred from entry to the temple altogether. So Jesus takes those who were told that they were disqualified from God's presence and brings them into God's presence. And once they're there, what does he do? He heals them. He removes the reason that the priests have had for disqualifying them in the first place. He is saying it through his action, oh, the illness you've misdiagnosed is spiritual, I took care of that. He is welcome in my father's house. She is welcome in my father's house. Jesus is doing a whole lot more than letting some doves free. He is kicking down the gates that separated people from God and the gates that separated people groups from one another. 
Mark's gospel explains to us that what Jesus did in a dramatic moment in the temple, he had actually been doing in hidden, quiet moments all along. We know that he's staying in the city of Bethany during his final week, but Mark 14 tells us more specifically, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. The home of Simon the leper. That's where Jesus is eating his meals and laying his head at night and having his morning coffee during the final week of his life. Now, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, and this is Passover. To enter the home and share the dinner table of a leper would have made one, according to the Levitical law, ceremonially unclean. Jesus is making himself ceremonially unclean during the highest of the high holidays. Again, through his action, he is essentially saying, if he's not welcome in my father's house, then neither am I. Through his action, Jesus is saying, maybe the center of kingdom activity this Passover season is not in the temple, but it is around the dinner table of the leper. It wasn't just that Jesus invited the outsiders to come in and be made clean. It's that Jesus went to the outsiders, made himself unclean, barred himself from entry. It's not just that Jesus invited them to come onto his turf, it's that he got comfortable on theirs. And what Jesus began in his temple cleansing, he finished seven days later at his crucifixion when the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. That's the Holy of Holies curtain, the only the high priest, only once a year curtain. The symbolism was obvious, everyone. That's who's welcome in my, my house of prayer every last one of you, and not after you clean yourself up or get yourself healed before in your current condition, because it's the Father's welcome that heals you, not the other way around. See, what I'm trying to show you is that Jesus turned the temple inside out. Suddenly, the excluded are the included, and the valueless are the invaluable. And Jesus did this by enacting both mercy and justice. Mercy is a word for humanizing, dignifying, and serving those who are forced to live on the margins of our society. Justice is a word for correcting the systems and structures that force them to the margins in the first place. And Jesus does both and calls us to do the same. And what that means for us is it is not enough to care for individuals who are victimized by hunger if we're contributing to or consuming from multinational corporations that are structurally keeping two-thirds of the world impoverished. And it's also not enough to be a conscious consumer if, if all of our conscious consuming is keeping our friendship circle insulated to just people that share my preferences, my socioeconomic status, and my comfort zone. We have to be people of both mercy and justice because Jesus was a person of mercy and justice and then calls us his body. And Jesus did mercy and he did justice, but all of it was fueled by a compassion that was forged in prayer. So here is what Jesus is trying to so dramatically show us. Prayer, apart from justice, is incomplete. The whole of the Bible is linking the two together. Scripture is one long story about compassion that moves God in love to set right what has been systemically corrupted. It's a story about prayer that leads to justice and justice that leads to prayer. God's intercession for humanity, his prayers became incarnated in Jesus. What does it mean for our prayers to become incarnated? 
I like the words Jordan Singh puts to it. He says, God's kingdom is set up in such a way that we can't work effectively in supernatural power without sacrificing as we do it. Because sacrifice is the truest expression of love. When Jesus walked the earth, he bonded sacrificially with many people in many situations, and now we get to join that ministry. The message is every person is worth suffering for personally. If we put our message into action, our prayers become extraordinarily powerful. So what exactly does it mean for our prayers to become incarnated, for us to become our prayers? It means that we pray prayers faithfully and become prayers sacrificially. It means that faith plus sacrifice is the way to supernatural power. And I I learned that lesson while sitting at a New York City bus stop at midnight next to Ramon with his massive suitcase right between us. He was dead set on running away. He offered me some murky plan of how he was gonna get from the Port Authority bus terminal in Times Square all the way to San Juan, Puerto Rico on nothing but the change in his pocket. It was flimsy at best. He'd called me around midnight to say goodbye, but I suspected he was actually calling me so that someone sane would talk him out of this plan. And I had met Ramon a few years prior to this defining night when he was a 16-year-old entering the ninth grade. He'd been held back a couple times. He was stepping into high school at a third grade reading level, a drop-off statistic waiting to happen. And we were introduced by his teacher who just happened to be a part of my church community and thought that Ramon could use a male role model in his life. He'd grown up... Uh, on Avenue D, which is the most infamous and dangerous block in New York City's infamous Alphabet City, which was the heroin capital of the globe in the 80s and had been entirely abandoned by the local government for a couple of decades. I mean, coming from the place he had come from, he was a remarkably well-adjusted kid. He was kind and respectful and he showed up to school on time and and he, he made generally positive choices. He was happy until his father was arrested for the possession and distribution of narcotics. Ramon was at home when the police raided his apartment. And he watched as they handcuffed his father behind his back and read him as Miranda. And in the days that followed, it was discovered that his father was not only dealing drugs out of their home, but he had been keeping Ramon's mother so well supplied for so long now that she had suffered irreparable damage to both her brain and her emotional world. It was only a few months after that that Ramon's teacher had introduced us. At this point, his story had taken a significantly different turn. He was drinking heavily. He was applying himself much less at school, rarely showing up, and I had no idea how to help him. I mean, what on earth does it mean for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven in a situation like this one? What does it mean for this guy to follow Jesus? I had not the first idea how to help this kid. But his story broke my heart. So that led me to prayer. So I would wake before the sun each morning and I walked this two mile route along Avenue D praying the Lord's Prayer. And I would always linger longest on that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, especially when I was standing beneath the apartment building that Ramon lived in. And I would pray that heaven would somehow break into earth in that apartment. And that God would begin to show me in my imagination what it might look like when when that occurred. It never occurred to me that God might actually involve me in answer to my own prayers. 
But that's how intercession so often works, right? Sometimes God moves heaven and earth and he, he actually intervenes in a supernatural way that we simply sit back and spectate on and see unfold. Prayer actually leads to the miraculous in real life. But it seems to me that God's preferred method, the most common way that he answers our prayers is to reform the heart of the praying person and then to send us in response to our own prayers to become our prayers. So prayer is how I ended up at this New York City bus stop at midnight, sitting next to Ramon with that big suitcase in between us. Because somewhere in the midst of all those early mornings praying kingdom come, a little bit of Jesus' long-suffering love for this one kid had gotten into me. And so when he called that night just to say goodbye, I knew there was nowhere else I would rather be. And I knew that if I was not willing to be the person sitting next to Ramon on that bus stop at midnight, if I was not willing to sit next to him the way I would readily sit next to any one of my own children, if I wasn't willing to sit next to him the way his father should have, but never would, if I wasn't willing to be at that bus stop that night, I knew how hollow praying kingdom come over him the next morning really would be. You see, our prayers, they, they lack credibility if they don't redirect our steps. Our prayers have this way of either reforming us from the inside out and sending us out or exposing us as all talk, of showing where our true attachments and our greatest affections really do lie. So somewhere around 1 a.m., I finally talked him into just sleeping on it. And it was about a year later that he and I were driving 300 miles north to a state university right along the Canadian border with every trinket he had ever owned packed into my car to drop him off at college. Ramon not only graduated from high school, he was a student body president his senior year. He's the first person ever in his family to go to college or graduate from college. Most importantly, he loves and follows Jesus. He came and visited Kirsten and I in Portland a few weeks ago. He sat with us and he worshiped alongside us. I'm so proud of him. And his story, it's one of the best I've ever gotten to get involved in. I've received so much more from this guy than I will ever give to him. And prayer is the way I got woven into that plot. Uh, prayer that, that did involve sacrifice, but man, the sacrifice next to the reward is so beyond worth it. I don't even know the right terminology to do it justice. And of course, Ramon's story is just one of many, and not all of them have fairy tale endings. And his doesn't have a fairy tale ending, by the way. He's still right in the middle of the plot, and it's got as many complications as anyone else's story does. But his story is a real one, it's not a fairy tale. And it's a story in which I found myself a privileged and unlikely participant. Prayer is the word for, the, for what got me in on all of that. You see, prayer is nothing more than love combined with humility, right? I love Ramon and his need far exceeds my capacity. So what fills the gap between love and my capacity? Prayer. Prayer occupies the space between. And those who pray then get to live the adventures that God unfolds in response. Jerry Sitzer says, without work or without what we're calling justice, prayer becomes rote, vacuous, and irrelevant, an empty discipline that shows little evidence of deep concern for the world. It loses its purpose, lacks passion, turns inward, serves the self. We mouth the words, but there is nothing at stake. 
The incarnation of our prayers, though, God's tendency to employ the praying person in answer to his or her own prayers, it's not some rebuke. It's not God's way of saying, well, you do something about it then. It's actually an incredible gift. It is the kindness of God that invites us to embody our prayers. I love the simple way Richard Foster explains it. He says, just like a child can never draw a bad picture, so a child of God can never utter a bad prayer. God, you see, accepts us just the way we are, and he accepts our prayers just the way they are. But here is the beauty of this interactive life of prayer. God does not leave us the way we are. See, an invitation not just to answer your prayer, but to become your prayer, it's God's way of saying yes and. Yes to what you're asking for, and I'll reform your heart and invite you to get to be a cast member in it playing out on the earth too. It's a yes and, it's the kindest sort of response. So prayer without justice is is incomplete, but to swing the pendulum to the opposite direction is equally problematic. Justice apart from prayer is incomplete. Isaiah 40 says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. You know, much of our activism and justice work today, it's done in urgent response to need, not in patient response to prayer. And it therefore is fueled by our weakness, not his strength, by our fainting, not his power. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak, but Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. Is that not the story of so much modern activism? Inspiring starts, coming out of the gate in a sprint, and then growing tired and weary and burned out and increasingly angry. Eugene Peterson says, a great deal of social action and political reform is fueled by anger the results of which are nearly always worse than the conditions that provoked the action. If we're gonna do something about what's wrong with the world, we have to acquire a better base to work from than anger. Jesus' justice emerged from compassion. He wept over the city. Pete Gregg says intercession, or praying for others, is impossible until we allow the things that break God's heart to break ours as well. So Jesus' justice emerged from compassion that was forged in prayer. Most of ours emerges from anger in response to need. And it's often righteous anger in reaction to real need. But that can't sustain the long work of true justice. And in my humble pastoral experience, the great tragedy of much of the justice movement in the modern church is this, that apart from an equal commitment to prayer, it tends to lead people away from the church. People take up justice in the name of Christ, but then they, over time, grow bitter toward the bride of Christ. A divide comes into the imagination between those who get it and those who just don't get it until mercy toward those outside the church is uh, joined with mercilessness toward those within the church. Floyd McClung says the difference between God and us is not anger over injustice, but the fact that he is absolutely just and we are not. Which is why working for justice, apart from intimacy with God through prayer, is incomplete in every instance and even dangerous in some. Justice that is not fueled by prayer erodes love and leaks power. Justice fueled by prayer increases love and moves by the Spirit's power. Gary Haugen, uh, about 30 years ago, left 
the U.S. Department of Justice to start uh, the International Justice Mission, or IJM. I'm guessing the majority of you have heard of it. Three years into that new startup, Gary had an encounter with God that so profoundly reshaped IJM. God spoke to him and revealed this concern that was growing both within Gary and the few employees of this little startup at the time, that what they were doing was good work, but that it was being run on prayerless striving, in his own words. And that was an insufficient source for the long race of justice. And so what emerged was a daily prayer rhythm. It's a great idea, don't you think? <laughs> that all IJM employees live by to this day. Their workday starts at 8.30 a.m. with morning stillness when every IJM employee is paid to spend the first half hour of their day at their desk silent before God. So they rush into work with all the items and the things they need to get done that day on their minds just like all the rest of us do and then they sit at their desk and say, come Holy Spirit. Let's wait upon the Lord who renews our strength so that all we do today is fueled by your power and not our striving. They stop again at 11 a.m. as a whole staff to read a psalm together and pray together as a team. He says this in his own words, I felt we needed a way of releasing what was cluttering our hands. We needed more of his power, but we needed to be more spiritually prepared to receive it. Today, IJM is so widely respected, many would consider them the, the most uh, exemplary justice organization on the globe today, and the whole thing is fueled by prayer. See, what I'm trying to show you is that prayer and justice are the breath of the church. Jesus was once famously asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So in that statement, Jesus took the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, the most famous commandment in Hebrew history to that point, and he bound it to Leviticus 19.18, a much uh, less known and often overlooked commandment about equal love for neighbor. Jesus was saying something like, you cannot separate loving God from loving the other. Dr. Cornell West says, love in public is called justice. And this is what I mean when I say that for Jesus, prayer and justice are interconnected, that there is no such thing as loving God that doesn't include equal love for the other. And there is no such thing of, of love for the other that is not founded in receiving the love of God. So if you pray tirelessly for the hungry, but you never find your own hand distributing bread to a hungry person, there's something dysfunctional about your prayer life. And if you distribute bread tirelessly to the hungry person, but you never find yourself or rarely find yourself praying for God to do what only God can do, there's something dysfunctional about your justice life. Prayer and justice are the breath of the church. We inhale by prayer and we exhale by justice. And neither one is complete without the other. In fact, one naturally leads to the other. I don't know about you, but when I inhale, I find it so natural just to exhale. And when I exhale, I find it nearly impossible not to inhale, right? A church that's alive is a church that's breathing through prayer. We take in the love of God and justice when we give it into the world and prayer and justice. A radical expression of prayer like a prayer room or a daily prayer rhythm is incomplete without an equally radical expression of justice. 
The Franciscan priest Brendan Manning says that the most exciting thing about dedicated times and spaces and rhythms of prayer isn't that people go to pray, it's what happens to the people when they leave the place of prayer. What if the hour you spend in the prayer room is when you refocus on Jesus so that you carry his presence with you into the other 23 hours of the day with a heightened awareness that he is with you, he is for you, that he likes you, that he hears your thoughts? You start to pray in real time. You instinctively lift situations to the Lord in the actual moment that you experience them. While you're watching that distressing news report or hearing about your friend's latest crisis, you're no longer deferring all your prayers to some later holier moment because your whole life is becoming that holier moment. See, the best way to pray without ceasing isn't to pray a whole bunch of prayers. It's to become your prayers, to become a life that is nothing more than a response to a conversation with the Father. That seems to be what I see in the person of Jesus, who only does what he sees his Father doing. And the best reason for places where prayer never stops or rhythms that unite a whole church in prayer is that it makes us into walking, talking, living, breathing, places where prayer never stops. It makes my life the point where heaven and earth intersect. So Jesus wept in prayer over the city and then he acted justly. Prayer sent him in the temple to turn over tables and it sent him to the margins to befriend Simon the leper. It sent him into the temple and into the margins until the line that divided the two had become entirely erased. So just as a thought experiment, what if Jesus met you today at the house of prayer at Bridgetown Church and he said to you that thing that he always says, follow me. I've noticed this thing about Jesus is that he never gives specifics, right? He never, he never says, follow me too. It's just follow me. So if he met you here and he said, follow me, where do you think you'd go? I do imagine that sometimes it would be for just like a peaceful walk through Irvington or like a nice hike, just me and him in Forest Park. But at least equally, it would be to the houseless camp where there's needles all over the ground and to the, the living room of the single mother working three jobs and to the housing projects and to the, to the kitchen table of the hungry child or the teenager without a single person to look up to. Because, I mean, he, he did take his disciples on walks to leper colonies and prostitution hubs and tax collector dinner parties and Samaritan and Gentile cities they were told to avoid and 5,000 5, hungry people with nothing to eat. And that sounds like the ancient equivalent to soup kitchens and refugee camps in the opposite side of the socio-political spectrum. Ian Nicholson said this years ago, and I wonder if it might be for us right now. The church has been gathering to say, come Holy Spirit, and in his grace he has come. But perhaps now the tables are turning. Perhaps now is the Holy Spirit's turn, and he is saying to us, come holy people. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is waiting for us to attend his meetings in some surprising places. 
Prayer and justice are not two expressions of the same faith that we get to pick and choose from. They're two sides of the same coin. Justice leads to prayer and prayer leads to justice. This is the breath of the church inhaling and exhaling. It's the life of the church. We are not a church with two focuses, prayer and justice. We're a church with one focus, Jesus. And that takes us to both. So how do we live this together? How do we put this into practice? Well, look, you should know right up front that there are no new practices today. There's nothing new to do. Simply allow justice to invade all the places that you're already praying. So to that end, as an eight-week initiative to deepen our daily prayer rhythm of morning, midday, evening prayer, we've been doing prayer hubs on Tuesday mornings. And it's been so beautiful to see people gathering to pray the Lord's Prayer scattered in different locations at different times on Tuesday mornings all throughout our city. But what we haven't told you until today is that we chose these locations not not haphazardly, but very intentionally. And we chose them not based on convenience, but based on mission. Because every one of our prayer hubs is the site of a current or historic place of injustice in our city. You should have been given one of these or offered one on the way in today. On the back side, it gives a one-sentence description of each prayer hub and why it was chosen. But you can also get the full story of each location at bridgetown.church justice. So here's our vision. We thought, okay, let's turn our city's historic places of pain into our city's altars of prayer. What does it mean to pray on earth as it is in heaven on this patch of earth. Every time you go to a prayer hub, you're praying the most powerful kind of prayer, an incarnated prayer. You're putting your feet right on the heartbreak of God and asking that he would break your heart to weep over the city the way Jesus wept over Jerusalem and then send you out in a yes and. Yes, I'll do something about it and I'll even reform your heart and write you as a cast member into the story. Maybe you didn't know that's what you were doing until today but now you do. So don't do anything new. Just pray like you've already been praying with your eyes newly opened. And if you haven't been attending a prayer hub, this is an invitation to come and to put your feet on these places of pain until they become altars of prayer. Look, the weather's turning. We got four weeks left, it's probably gonna be rainy. What better picture of the church than a group of people standing on a place where brokenness has reigned in our city, damp, and uncomfortable and holding umbrellas because that minuscule sacrifice is worth saying, God, repurpose this. You're a redeemer, not an editor. So redeem the story of our city right here as we simply say, kingdom come. What stories might we get in on if we're willing to pray like that? And what stories might we miss out on if we're not? Secondly, uh, Bridgetown communities are right at the heart of our church, so in our communities we are reintroducing the rhythm of a community mission. So for the past decade, it's always been the aim of Bridgetown communities to once a month serve, ideally serve together, uh, but that's never truly been expressed across the majority of our communities. So we spent the last six to eight months researching the needs of our city and the resources of our church. Resources, not just meaning finances, but people and creativity and competencies and everything you could mean by that word. Seeing where they intersect. And then our racial justice committee and our justice and mercy deacons under the direction of J.T. Thomas identified seven key areas of engagement where the needs of our city and the resources of our church meet. Here are those seven, truth and reconciliation, vulnerable families and individuals, education, global witness, community development, homeless and houseless care, and criminal justice. 
So from this day forth, every time I say justice or we say justice at Bridgetown Church, that's what we're talking about. These seven areas of need in our city that we're taking spiritual responsibility for as a church. And so for each of those areas, we've identified at least one ally and action. Allies are existing organizations in our city already doing kingdom work that we have formalized partnerships with. Actions are ways that we've identified that we can be the body of Christ, that we can affect change in one of these areas of need outside of or in addition to uh, pre-existing organizations. So if you were to take uh, homeless and houseless care, for example, an ally that we have is Because People Matter, an organization we've partnered with for a long time that many of you have served with. And an action that, that we would commend you to do is distribute houseless care kits. Like, take essential toiletries and food to the houseless folks in your neighborhood. So we are doubling down on our vision of seeing every one of our Bridgetown communities engage in monthly service through one of our allies or actions. Everything you could ever want to know about that is up right now at bridgetown.church justice. So what I want you to hear from me today is why justice runs through communities. And it's simply this, that, that in the Gospels, Jesus promises that we can find his presence in two places. One is wherever two or three are gathered, that's in Matthew chapter 18, and the other is in the poor, that's Matthew chapter 25. And there is no version of apprenticeship to Jesus that does not regularly involve both environments. There's no version of following this rabbi as a solo journey. Community isn't essential. We know that around here. And there is no version of following this rabbi that does not regularly increase my proximity to the poor. And we want to discover that around here. So Bridgetown communities are the primary vehicle for all of our discipleship to Jesus. So if that's the place our discipleship happens, then it's gotta be a place where justice happens. Now, if you're already in a Bridgetown community, no stress at all. Your community leader's already chosen an area of engagement for you. The reason that we're doing it that way is because the invitation is proximity. The invitation isn't discern where you should serve for the next 10 years and where they'll put a plaque for you when you die. The invitation is just get close. Get close to the need. And then from a place of relational proximity, when you get, because there's some things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried, when you get close enough to where compassion can be developed, then we can have a context in which justice in the name of Jesus could happen and a context in which we might discern together in our communities where are we meant to engage for the next year or two or three or 10. But the vision right now is first, let's just get close enough to where all that could play out. It's proximity. And if you're not in a Bridgetown community, the way in is through Community Basics, which we run three times a year. It's wrapping up for the fall today, so you can jump in in the new year. But in the meantime, you can absolutely engage any of these as an individual. Just go to bridgetown.church justice, sign up where you wanna serve, and live it out. So in summary, how do we live this? Through prayer hubs. We got four weeks left in prayer hubs. If you have not been joining us to pray on Tuesday mornings, come on. Get yourself there, let's pray together. And then secondly, through community mission. And if, if for you that requires sacrifice, sacrifice like booking a sitter, or rescheduling plans, or changing routines, or, or saying no to something else, and if you go 
and then you have a bad experience, but you keep on showing up after this because this is about self-giving love, not warm fuzzies. And if you begin to gather with people that you've gotten really used to gathering with around a living room in some other space that is far beyond most of your comfort zone, then that would be a wild success in the eyes of Jesus because we'd have found ourselves in a context where he can teach us new things, show us new parts of himself, and write new stories in our lives. So let's close with this today. Here's how the credits roll on our story from Mark 11. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said, Jesus, or said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. There's that tree again. Remember that tell in the opening scene? And his disciples heard him say it. Jesus was an embodying an illustration. But they didn't know what he was illustrating yet. Jesus curses a tree and then later hangs on a tree. But as that story continues to unfold, we see that when Jesus comes back, the point that he was making at the close of that first day was this, that prayer without justice is dead. It may look alive, like a tree full of green leaves that appears to be alive and healthy and thriving, but then if you get close enough, there's no fruit on the branches. There is no house of prayer that is not equally a house of justice. The inward expression of prayer without the outward expression of justice is a tree full of leaves but no fruit, which might as well be rotted. We must become people who discover the joy of what it is to have justice at the center of our prayer and prayer at the center of our justice.